2 Peter chapter 1. We began a series last week that's going to take us six or seven weeks. A series from Peter the Apostle of Jesus Christ, decades after Christ had risen, as the church has grown and expanded and now come under persecution, a short time after writing this, years, perhaps even just months, Peter would be executed under the reign of Nero, the Roman emperor. And the church throughout the land was experiencing great persecution and were tempted to give up. And Peter is writing to exhort and encourage them to reject false teaching and to cling to what is true and right in the midst of every difficulty and persecution with the promise that if they endure, as they endure, they will rejoice. And so... We're going to continue our look at 2 Peter this morning in chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. I'll be reading verses 5 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I imagine, but I'm not going to assume, I imagine that most of you have read or heard the story of the little engine that could. And in case you haven't, I'm not going to point you out, but I do want to know, what were you reading as a child? The little engine that could, for those that don't remember or were not you know, up on this fine work of literature is a story of a little train engine. I think I failed to say that it was a train engine in the first service, so there might be a few confused people. A little engine trying to carry a heavy load up the rail tracks up a hill. And it's hard. It's a heavy load, and this is a little engine. And he he gets himself worked up going, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And it becomes kind of this, this rhythm as the train is chugging up the hill. I think I can, I think I can, and it gets hard, and it's, it's getting steeper, and the load is heavy, but he's, I think I can, I think I can, and then he gets to the top of the hill, and then he starts coasting down, I knew I could, I knew I could, I knew I could, I knew I could, and it's, it's a valuable lesson of perseverance, and, and, and just going for it, and trusting, and, and just working hard, but, but it's not an appropriate illustration, I think, of the Christian life. But sadly, to many of us, our approach to the Christian life comes off in much the same way. How how do we know that we belong? How are we to be assured that we will make it to the end? We, We look to our own faith. Do I believe correctly enough? Do I believe strongly enough? We look to our behavior. Am I moral enough? Am I obedient in the right ways? We look to our feelings. Am I sincere? Do I feel these things deeply? And we, in doing so, we're just like that, that little engine telling ourselves over and over, I think I can, I 
think I can. I think I can be a good Christian. I think I can get to heaven. I think I can follow God. And then on the days when it works out and we feel pretty good about it, I knew I could. I knew I could do it. This is all about the issue of assurance. Assurance is a word that, that means like knowing something for sure. But not, not just in your head. Okay, assurance goes deeper than my knowledge because many of us know the promises of God. We know what God has said, but, but that, journey, that journey down to our heart doesn't always make it without interruption, does it? We, we don't always feel it the way we need to. We need assurance that God saves us, not just in what we know, but also in how we feel. Am I confident? Am I secure? Do I know it in my bones and in my gut that I belong to God and that I have been saved by Him? Some days, yeah, I, I do. Many days, maybe not. And so as Peter writes to a people of God struggling to hang in there and to endure, struggling to, to persevere until the day of the return of Christ, he gives them an idea of what it looks like to be assured. How can I know? What do I base that assurance on? It, it, assurance is not just feeling so confident that you sit back and do nothing because everything's going to be fine. But neither is it trying to force your way up the hill and just digging deep and looking to your own self and saying, it's up to me, I think I can do it. Peter describes our assurance in three ways. Working from our salvation, working out our salvation, and working towards our salvation. I want to look at each of those in turn. First, our assurance looks like this. It looks like working from our salvation. In verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort. And taken by itself, I imagine our eyes are really drawn to the make every effort, so much so that we miss out the for this very reason. Well, what reason is it, Pastor? Because you started us at verse 5. That's not very fair. Well, it goes back to what, what Randy showed us last week as we looked at the verses before. The reason that we are to make every effort is this, verses 3 and 4. God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which God has granted us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. That is quite a mouthful. But that's the reason. For this very reason. Because God has given us everything we need to work hard and obey Him. Because God has given us His promises that ensure us that we'll be able to do it. Because God has made us partakers of His very divine nature. Because God has caused us to escape from the corruption that's in the world. Do you see that, that our working is a response to the amazing work that God has already done? I can't tell you how, how much this idea landed like a nuclear bomb in my heart and in my mind as a Christian who for 12 years had been just thinking it was all up to me and realizing that, no, God's power has given us everything we need to do what He's called us to do. It's not up to my strength, my ability. God has made it possible. I work from my salvation. Too many of us, 
who were raised as Christians or who have sat outside the church looking in and hearing all this talk about faith have this mistaken notion that if we obey all the rules, then God will save us. And that's why we have to do all these things. Make every effort to do all this because if you don't, God doesn't save you. The way we are assured of our salvation in that scheme is by doing everything right. But at the heart of the gospel message is this important distinction. We do not obey God so that He will save us. We obey God because He's already saved us. And some of you are hearing that for the first time and you need to hear it again. We don't obey God because He will save us, that, so that He will save us. I have to obey God so that He'll save me. No, we obey God as Christians because He has already saved us. We work from salvation. You don't work in order to be assured. You work because you already are assured. Verse 9 puts it this way, whoever lacks these qualities, these virtues that he describes, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He was already, in the past, cleansed. If you are lacking these virtues, this life of obedience, as a Christian at least, you have forgotten what got you there. You were already cleansed of your sin. Now live from that. The cleansing comes first. The obedience comes next. Many of you even in the past year, as we've been praying for you and tracking with you, have gone through surgery, and then that surgery was followed by some form of physical therapy, right? Some of you are going through it right now, watching online, I know. What would you think if you went and the doctor said, hey, you know what, we're going to do a little different this time. We're going to do all the physical therapy first, and then we're going to replace your knee. Would anybody go for that? Probably not, because it doesn't work that way. The, the, the therapy, the working out, is, is by nature a response to what came before it. And the same with your salvation. Believer, child of God, you work from being saved. The obedience that you show is the result of that, the product of that. It can't exist without it. Assurance, therefore, begins with the gracious work of God in Jesus Christ to save you. Our response to that work, our obedience, our living godly, it strengthens our confidence, it strengthens our assurance, but it is not the source of our confidence or our assurance. And here's why that matters so much when we're talking about it. When we need assurance, when we are questioning, when we are doubting, when we are fearful, the question that we often ask, either out loud or in our hearts, is, have I done enough? to satisfy God. Have I done enough? And I look over my life, I cringe at some memories and I relax and I'm encouraged by others. I look at my heart, I think of, I, I, I just revisit where I'm at and I evaluate, have I done enough to please God? And that's the wrong question. Because the answer to that will always be no. God is perfectly holy. And there is no, no universe where you are able to do enough to be perfectly obedient to Him, to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to perfectly love your neighbor as yourself, to always only do the things you ought to do and to never neglect the things that you should do. 
You will never do enough. If being accepted by God does not come from what you do, then it makes no sense to ask if you've done enough. Your acceptance does not come from you. It comes from what God has done. And so the question to ask instead is this. Is Christ enough? Is Jesus Christ enough? And the answer to that is always a resounding and unmistakable, yes, yes, he's enough. He's enough. Listen to how the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 10. He recalls the promise of God saying, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's what we want. The assurance that God is not as we saw earlier in Psalm 130. If you kept a record of sins, Lord, who would be able to stand? None of us. Now, where there's forgiveness of these, of our sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. I don't need to do enough. If they're already forgiven, I don't need to do more. Therefore, because of that, we have confidence to enter the holy places, to enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what gives us the confidence to stand before God. That He has taken your place, died on behalf of sinners. The death of Jesus completes, it fully satisfies all the demands of God's justice. His blood not only pays for your sins, but His obedience fulfills your obligation. A God who demands that you live perfectly righteously looks at Christ and says, I accept His righteous deeds in your place. And that is enough. To doubt your acceptance when you come to God through Christ is to, to question whether or not Jesus is enough. Was the blood of Jesus enough for me? Was the obedience of Jesus enough? Now some of you, I, I can tell, some of you are like, oh no, that's me. I'm doubting, I'm questioning Jesus. How wretched am I? The good news that I have for you is that the blood of Jesus is enough for that too. It's enough for you to, who, who failed to believe as you ought. For you who failed to grasp the fullness of your forgiveness, the blood of Jesus is enough for that too. Your assurance works from that salvation. So if you crave assurance, I want you to read these verses that we're looking at today and not despair. Look at verse 8. Peter says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Leave that verse up there for a minute because I'm going to want to, yeah, I'm going to, want to point to it. Okay. There's a very key word here that, that helps us understand this. Unfruitful. Okay, if you lack these things, you are unfruitful. But if they exist and you are growing in them, you are, at least to some degree, fruitful. Many of you have heard the stories of my mango tree. I always seem to find some illustration to give you from the mango tree in my backyard. Well, here's another one. If I went out to my mango tree this season, you know, late June when they all start dropping out of the trees and making my yard smell like rotted mango, uh, if I went out there and there were only like five or six mangoes on the tree instead of five or six hundred like I usually get, would I say, oh no, I don't have to. It's not a mango tree anymore. It must be an oak. It was at a reasonable conclusion. No, I'm not a botanist, nor do I play one on TV. But that makes no sense. Okay, I would not see a mango tree with few fruit and say, must not be a mango tree anymore. But do we do that? Do we look at our own lives and say, there's not enough fruit in my life. I must not be a Christian. 
No, no, we can't do that either. If we come to God in Christ and determine that our fruit is lacking, it is not enough, that's not a basis for us to reject our assurance. Your assurance doesn't come from the volume or measure of your, your fruit, your obedience. Just the presence of it. If you are in Christ, you will produce this fruit. In some seasons of life, more. And it should be in an increasing measure. You should be cultivating and growing and improving in these things. But the presence of the fruit at all shows what you are, shows what God has made you to be, shows that the Lord has indeed saved you. The measure of your fruit might give an indication of your spiritual health. I might look at that tree and say, wow, maybe it's not getting enough water. Maybe there's something that needs to be taken care of. Maybe I need to prune it a little bit better. I'll ask Carl. He'll tell me. He knows all about it. But the fruit itself shows me what the tree is. Your salvation bears fruit. Don't measure the fruit to determine whether or not you are in Christ. Just look to see if it's there. Work from your salvation. So yes, our salvation is a gift from God's abundant grace. It's based on what Christ has done, not on what we do. And yet, we read things like verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Or verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. See, we don't just work from our salvation. The next thing we have that gives us assurance is that we work out our salvation. We work it out. Grace of God does not exclude effort on our part. The grace of God doesn't exclude effort. It enables our effort. It makes our effort possible. Because we work from our salvation, we then go on to work out our salvation. To understand why our efforts are a part of our salvation, we need to understand what it is that we're being saved from. When we hear in the church talk of being saved, maybe our first, and for some people their only thought, is that we're saved from hell. Saved from judgment. Saved from condemnation. And that is true, 100%. 100% true. Through Jesus Christ, we are saved from the penalty of our sins. Praise God. Amen. I don't deny that. But there's more than that. In verse 4, we see Peter writes that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have escaped the corruption in the world that is the result of sin. And that is something still being carried out. Something that is ongoing. We are being saved from from the ways and consequences of sin in the world. I know it's a little too late for me to hit a Christmas reference, but when the angel announced the birth of Christ in Matthew 1.21, he told Joseph these words. He says, His name will be Jesus, which means God saves, because this child will save His people from, not sin, but from their sins. See, He wasn't just going to die to deliver us from the penalty of our sins, but He was also going to save us and deliver us from the world, the environment, the acting out, the living out of sin and its ways. Not having to live enslaved to our desires is salvation. No longer being carried along by the currents of what's popular in our culture and our society. That's salvation. Not taking part in the self-obsession that is the age of endless selfies and self-promotion and self-posting. That's salvation. 
Not seeing comfort and novelty as a justification for how to spend all your money and time. That's salvation. Not vilifying or demonizing people who are different from you. That's salvation. Not being squeezed into a mold of what the world says is an acceptable, cool person. That's salvation. We are freed from that in Christ. And the way that we live ought to show that. It's a working out of that freedom that we've already been given. People who are freed from their desires and from, uh, and from the pressure of culture and from being compelled to live the way people think you ought to live, people who are freed from that live a specific way. It works itself out in a certain way. And so we work out our salvation in these ways. We live in a way that shows we're not slaves to our desires and our addictions and our appetites. We're not bound to the ways of the world around us. The image Peter uses that we already looked at is a common one in Scripture in verse 8. The, the image of fruitfulness. That if you, keep, if you live these ways and you grow and cultivate this in your life, it's fruit that shows what's really there. Or as Peter says in verse 10, confirm your calling and election. In other words, when you live this way, you are showing that you are one of God's people, that you are chosen by Him and called by Him, and your life demonstrates that. It works out the hidden reality of your salvation and makes it visible. Scripture calls you to look to the fruit of your salvation, to the way that you're freed from living in destructive, evil, and ultimately unfruitful ways. When we grow in godliness and take on more of these virtues that we read here, we're not making our salvation or our election more real. We're making it more visible. It's real because of what God has done in Christ. But it's visible because of how He enables us, makes us able to live differently by liberating us from addictions, temptations, passions, and pressures in the world. We're not creating something new. We're showing what God has already done, what He's already given us. So let's look quickly at these this list of things that he puts here in these verses, starting in verse 5. And note how each of these virtues uh, sets us in opposition to, to how our culture and our world would have us live. Verse 5, supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue as opposed to living by the standard of popular opinion. You know, when, we, when we add virtue to our faith, Virtue is saying, I know what is good and I'm going to live according to what is good, not necessarily according to what's popular or easy. And then supplement and add to your virtue knowledge. Knowledge as opposed to intentional ignorance. Not seeking the truth. Instead saying, I want to learn more and understand more of God and His ways. And the more I do so, the more He confirms it. And add to that knowledge self-control as opposed to our culture that would lead us into indulgence. If I want it, I get it. Who was it that did a song about that? Ariana Grande, I think. I want it, I get it. You know, that's the value of our culture. If I want something, I get it, I deserve it. No, we're going to exhibit self-control. We're going to say, look, I, I don't have to have that. That might not be what's best for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live according to knowledge and virtue. And that takes self-control. And add to that self-control steadfastness. Steadfastness is hanging on even when things get hard, when it takes a long time, when it doesn't work right. You know, this morning, I, I was not steadfast. Okay, I, 
I was in the McDonald's drive-thru and it, it took maybe like two and a half or three minutes for this guy to make my order. Never mind, I think he was the only one in the restaurant because he also took my order and my payment and then brought it out to me. Three minutes for McDonald's? No, I want it now. When I go on Amazon, do you know what I do? I sort by only show me the things that are gonna get, gonna get here in two days. Because if it's gonna take any more than that, I don't want it. Okay, we, we are not steadfast. We are, we, are, we are a culture of convenience. And if it's gonna take me a long time and hard work, it's not worth it for me. But when we are freed from that, we can live in a way that's steadfast. And we add to that steadfastness, godliness. Godliness which looks to the Lord to determine what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and what is right. Rather than just saying it's all relative and you pick the truth that you want. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live by what God says is right. Even if that's hard for me, even if that goes against the grain of how I feel about it, I'm going to live godly. And then we add to that godliness, brotherly affection, which I, I would say is the opposite of the tribalism that has consumed our culture in recent years. A view that if you are not like me, you are my enemy. If you are not on my side, you are against me and I'm going to fight you. No, brotherly affection looks at others and says, I can, I can encourage you, I can support you, I can affirm you, I can, I can be kind to you, even if you don't agree with me, even if you're outside my tribe, outside my group, outside my familiar zone. We need brotherly affection. And we, we cap it off, we add to that love. Love, which in Scripture again and again is, is the opposite of self-exaltation. Love which lays down its life for the other. Which says, I'm going to put your needs above my needs. I'm going to consider you before I consider myself. Okay, people who are saved can live that way. Because the gospel frees us from being enslaved to, to other things. The gospel frees us from needing to justify our existence by pleasing other people. The gospel frees us from needing to, to scrounge together some security by, by accumulating enough stuff that we have. The gospel frees us from those things and from the evil of them and enables us to live in this radical, challenging, countercultural way. A Christian can declare, I have everything I need for life and for godliness. And now, here's how that looks. Look how I work out that salvation. So, people of God, you work from your salvation, but you also work out your salvation. You express it. But there's one more level that we need. And we have to. And I'm reminded of this by a, a scene in a movie from a number of years back where Jack Nicholson is playing a character named Melvin. Melvin is an author who has a severe form of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. He's on medication for it. He's receiving uh, you know, psychiatric help for it. And, and something happens to shake up Melvin's very ordered world. And it, I believe it involved a woman. Uh, but it, it disrupted his life in a potentially very positive way, but, but he was not handling it well, and he, he storms into the psychiatrist's office and tries to get it all sorted out, and he, you know, it doesn't work out in there, and he's storming out, and he's standing in the waiting room, and there's all these patients waiting to be seen, and, and Jack Nicholson just looks around, and he goes, what if this is as good as it gets? And then he just walks out of the office, and I, I believe like somebody in the waiting room just starts like crying even, which is the proper response. Because if this, if, if, if just existing in this struggle 
and just trying to improve and work out our salvation, if that's as good as it gets, that's sad. There needs to be something more. And there is. And Peter shows us that. We don't just work from our salvation. Don't just work out our salvation. We work towards our salvation. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, first, that sounds like simple work and reward. Do a good job, you'll get a prize. Good little boys, good little girls, go to heaven. But if we look closer at what it actually says at verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Peter describes our future salvation not as a reward, but as a gift provided for you. A reward depends on the goodness of the worker, the one who's earned it. But a gift, a gift depends on the goodness of the giver. And your assurance, therefore, comes from the character the generous, gracious character of God who richly provides entrance into His kingdom, an entrance, a welcome that you don't deserve. And, if, and what we do today works backwards from that. If my destination, my rich welcome is given to me by God and I can be assured of it, confident in it, how should I live today? I should live in a way that's fitting and appropriate for the place where I'm going. And many of you have, have traveled overseas. Some of you I know, like me, have at some point in your life moved to another country. And what do you do when you're preparing for a long trip or a move to another country? You, you have to get ready for it. You have to uh, get different electric adapters, maybe, for your devices. You've got to get a different wardrobe if you're moving to a different client. You've got to start, start learning the language. And you get a phrase book and you start learning how to talk in, in the nature of the place where you're going. Our, our working, our striving, our adding virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, all these things, it's our way of packing for the trip that we're taking to the eternal kingdom. A place where we speak the language of kindness and peace and truth. A place where we are clothed in gentleness and peace and virtue and brotherly affection. You know, Cheryl Crocker mentioned earlier, because she heard the sermon already, that, that Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian, uh, likes to refer to the church as a colony of heaven. And, and I like that image. Because a colony is an outpost. It's, it's a gathering of people from one country who are living in a land that's not their home. And, and as they live in that colony, they preserve the language and the laws and the customs and the celebrations of their home. And the church is to be like that. The church is to be a place where we preserve the language and the laws and the culture and the habits of our true home where our citizenship is. Our citizenship, as described in Philippians 3 that we sang about this morning, is Zion, city of our God. If I'm a member of that city by grace, then what have I to fear? Listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians 3. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end, their goal, where they're headed is destruction, and their God is their belly. That means their appetite. They're, they're driven by what they desire, their appetites. 
and their glory, they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that you live shows where you are headed. It shows what kind of land you're getting ready for. As a child of God, you now sit in a colony of heaven. Your citizenship has already been given to you by grace. And someday you will return home and receive a rich welcome as a child of God. And right now you're working, you're striving, you're obeying, your growth, your sanctification. They, they are to move you towards that salvation when you are fully and finally delivered to the grace that has already been given but which you have yet to take hold of. And as you express that belonging, that heavenly citizenship, it should assure you that you belong in that land where you're headed. Now there's one other beautiful phrase here in verse 10. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will never fall. That is a prediction. That is not a prediction. That is a promise. It's not a prediction like, well, if you do a good job, then I don't think you're going to fall. It was... If you're doing this, you're not going to fall. And by fall, Peter doesn't mean you're not going to sin. He doesn't mean you're not going to mess up, make mistakes, or experience difficulties. No, he means you're not going to fail to reach the end. You're not going to stumble and fall out of the race before you are welcomed home. But hear it clearly. It's not saying that if you work hard, if you're consistently and thoroughly good enough, you don't have to worry about falling because you're going to succeed. No, that, that puts, that's the I think I can mentality all over again. That just puts the burden on your shoulders. Peter's instead saying that if you practice these virtues, if you are living in a way that expresses the fruit of the salvation that you have by grace, the promise that we won't fall is because the same grace that gave you salvation, the same grace that makes you grow and express that salvation is also the grace that makes sure we arrive safely at God's home. You know, I should have had us close today with singing Amazing Grace just for that one verse. It's His grace that brought me safe thus far. And by golly, I'm going to work hard and make sure I get home, right? No, nobody's ever sang it that way. But that's how we feel about it. That's how we think about it sometimes. Grace got me this far. But i got to be the one to get me home. No. If you practice these qualities, it is an expression that grace is in you, that the grace of God has so transformed you. And that grace will see you home. It's like I love reminding you as often as I think of it in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In case I haven't been clear, I want to make it explicit now. The three ways that Peter describes our assurance Working from salvation, working out salvation, and working towards salvation. They're all premised on the same single truth. That your salvation is a gift of God in Christ. Therefore, working for your salvation doesn't fit in there anywhere. Because you don't work for it. You work from it, you work it out, you work towards it. But it is a gift nonetheless. There was an incident in, in my travels long ago that reminded me of this. Um, it's, it's just funny that Cheryl mentioned Bali because the story came from Bali. Um, my wife and I, years and years ago, we were there and 
uh, we wanted to visit a temple that we had seen. It was like a Hindu temple or something, and um, we were very curious about it. It was a famous sightseeing spot, so we wanted to go check it out. And as we approached, I was told I was not allowed to enter because I was wearing pants. And they're in that culture and in that religion, you had to have a skirt kind of wrapped around your waist. And I had not packed a skirt for my trip. So, but they anticipated my need and they supplied me with a, a beautiful decorative skirt. And, they, and I think April actually has a picture of, of the guide at the entrance kind of wrapping the skirt around me and tucking it in and making sure it was all in place before I could go in. Now, when he did that, I had no doubt that I would be received at that point. Because what I needed was supplied by the one who made the demand. The one who said, you need to have a skirt, said, here's a skirt. Here's what you need to enter and be welcomed. Where, where you are given what is demanded. When the demander gives what is demanded, there is assurance. When God, who has required something of you, also gives it to you, there is assurance. There is no need to doubt or fear? How do I know I will be received? How do I know I will be enough? How do I know I will be welcomed by God? I know because what I have is given to me by God. What God has done through Jesus is all I need. If that is the object of your belief, your faith, your trust this morning, then you have assurance. You're justified in being assured. If that trust expresses itself in a life of growth and obedience, you have assurance, and rightly so. But if that's not you this morning, if that's not where your heart is, I leave you with a warning instead of an invitation. I'm sorry, a warning and an invitation. Wow, that came up. Wow. Sorry, I was realizing I keep saying morning, and I should be saying this afternoon. But no, I, I want to give you a, war a quick warning and a quick invitation. The warning is that you will not find the assurance that your heart needs and craves. You're not going to find that anywhere else. It is only in because only Christ can give you what God demands. But the invitation is to receive that gift. To turn to Him in faith, turn away from your sin, and follow Christ. And to all those here this morning who are trusting in Christ, but who perhaps like me and almost every one of us, at times follows that roller coaster. I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm scared, I'm nervous. How, do I, how can I be comfortable? How can I rest? The God who has saved you in Christ has given you His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as we're about to sing in a moment, will turn your strivings into works of grace. So let's prepare our hearts to rejoice in that as we sing this afternoon, praising the God who gives you assurance through what He has done. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes possible what we could not do on our own, no matter how much we declare that I think I can. There is no assurance, no hope, no peace, and no rest on that path. But what you have given, what you have given in Christ, is always enough. Let your people rest in that assurance. We pray in the name of our Savior, who is our assurance.